Okay. I'm going to read the obligatory governor's statement. Pursuant to Governor Baker's March 12, 2020 order suspending certain provisions of the open meeting law, general laws chapter 30A section 18 and the governor's March 15, 2020 order imposing strict limitations on the number of people that may gather in one place. This meeting of the city of Medford Energy and Environment Committee is being conducted via remote participation. No in-person attendance of members of the public will be permitted, but every effort will be made to ensure that the public can adequately access the proceedings as provided for in the order. Persons who would like to listen to or view this meeting while in progress may do so by accessing the link that was included on the meeting agenda posted on the city of Medford website. If despite our best efforts, we are not able to provide for real-time access, we will post a record of this meeting on the city's website in the near future at the link provided in the meeting agenda. Let's see, did anyone else or Jessica joined? Okay. So I've got uh, so far, Luke, me, Barry, Loretta, Kathleen, Martha, Jessica, Gaston, and Paul as nine of the 14 members. If I haven't uh, named you and you've joined, uh, oh, Chris is now joining. Okay, Chris Holder. Hello. Okay, good. You're the 10th of 14. Great. We just read the the governor's you know notice of uh, remote meetings. Um, we are going to also introduce. Uh, I'm going to now have uh, Bruce Kulik. You're uh, going to be presenting later today. So, uh, are, are you able to be? Uh, why don't you unmute yourself briefly here and say hello? Okay. At least I can see your hand. Okay. So you're good. Okay. Oh, there we go. How about that? Is that better? All right, that's better. Okay, great. Beautiful. Bruce will be talking about the Medford Bike Advisory Commission activities in a few minutes. Uh, why don't we go over the uh, review of minutes from the May 3, 2021 meeting then? Uh, I sent them out last week. Does anyone have any comments on the meeting minutes as uh, drafted? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but I don't think I was there. Um, I'm marked as present. Um, oh. Maybe I was there, but if there were new members were who there. I don't remember meeting, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you remember talking about the Green Energy Awards? For... I was there, huh? Okay. Yes, you were there. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we well, have the I, recording, Barry. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't think I got the, the minutes. Okay. Uh, I sent them out Thursday night. So why don't you check an email uh, Thursday? But since you weren't officially a member, then I guess you can't officially vote to, to accept them. Anyway. Was, I wasn't looking at my screen. Was that Gaston? I could resend them to you. And then if they don't pop up for you, then you might want to check if mail from Bob is going into spam. 
Um, okay, I'll, I'll check. I, I did oh, get all these emails about the subcommittees and stuff like that, but I, I don't think, but I will check. In any case, as Bob said, I wasn't a member, so I'm just not going to vote. But thank you. I, I will check that right now. Thank you. Check Thursday evening's email. Um, okay, uh, I will entertain a motion to um, accept the minutes if there's no discussion. I'll second that. Well, I can't. I can't make the motion. I you can uh, motion uh, motion to accept. Okay, uh, and I'll second it. Okay, I'm going to call the roll of the members who were members last month. Luke. Yes, I uh, accept. Yes, I accept. Uh, Barry. Yes. Okay. Uh, Loretta. Hi. <laughs> yes. And Kathleen. <laughs> Kathleen, are you uh, unmuted? Oh, there's John Rogers of all people. Golly. Kathleen, we couldn't hear you. Um, you can say put a thumbs up if you say yes. Okay, she said indicates yes. Okay. Uh, then uh, Martha. Yes. And Jessica. Yes. And Chris. Yes. Okay, I think it's unanimous. Okay, let's uh, consider them accepted, and then uh, the new members will be able to obviously vote in future uh, meetings. Okay, Alicia, uh, you can give us administrative updates and, and you might want to mention the, the possibility of the future of meeting in person of all things. Yes. Um, John, I think you're going to need to mute when you're not talking. Are you working in your, um, you may be working in your basement office. <laughs> yes, I'm in my basement office. Yeah, I could tell. <laughs> Um, so can you guys hear my air conditioning running? Like, is that making too much background noise though? Okay. Cause I don't mind turning it off. Um, I am the energy person. So, um, all right. So administratively, the, um, the big question is around meetings and in person or remote. And when I was asking today, the answer was, well, until June 15th, you can definitely be remote. It can be it, whatever your committee wants. And I was like, how about after June 15th? We are waiting for legislation. So the governor filed um, something with the state legislature to extend the open meeting law emergency order to September 1st to give, to give time to work things out. Um, and so, we don't know if the legislation legislature is going to pass that. Hopefully they will. So so everybody is fully aware. Sorry, this is really bothering me. It's not bothering you. Um, everybody is aware. Uh, open meeting law says, has always said that board members must be in person to be considered present. There is nothing, there has never been anything preventing board members to be remote. They just can't be counted towards quorum. And there's nothing pre preventing um, the public from being remote 
and participating, right? So like a hybrid, the way the city council is doing it, where they're in person and the public is remote, um, has always been legal. Uh, we just, nobody's ever really tried doing it because it, oh, it seemed like a big deal, hard, whatever. Why would you do it? Now we all know that it's totally doable. Um, so we are working on getting more city spaces set up so that we could do that. I am personally hoping that they will allow boards and commissions in the state to make their own decisions about how they want to meet, um, because that would allow things like partial in-person, partial remote. We tried that with a staff meeting today. We had a group of us around a table and a laptop at the end of the table where members of the of our office were remote, could call in like Nana was remote and she called in and like eight of us were around the table. Um, it works. It's not as equal as when everybody's remote or everybody's in person. Um, one of the ideas that I had been sort of tossing around is that a committee like this, that really the personal networking and stuff is really helpful for figuring things out and getting stuff done, might want to consider doing a hybrid where we actually declare certain meetings. We want everybody to be in person if possible. And other meetings we just say are full remote meetings. Um, that would allow us like say over the summer to say, let's all be remote because everybody wants to be somewhere else, but can still get together and talk. But then, you know, September before the Harvest Your Energy Festival, we're saying, let's get together in person and talk in person. There's a lot of great um, side conversations that can happen about projects and all. Um, so to sort of be thinking about how we should do things and what would be best if we're given our, our choice. Um, there is a possible, one of the ideas that is floating in the legislature is that boards and commissions could meet remotely, but that there would need to be an in-person option for members of the public who wanted to come in person, which is an interesting, like one of us would need to be in city hall hosting a location that people could come and see the meeting, but the members don't need to be there. Um, so these partially, I would say, let's discuss what we wanna do, but the, the bottom line is we still don't know what we're allowed to do. And so I would suggest that you let some of these various ideas bubble around in your head as to what you would want. And then when we know what the rule is, then we decide. Um, the big question is, though, for our next meeting, um, which we're going to schedule in a few minutes, if we have the option for people to be fully remote, do we want to be that way? Would we rather be in person? Um, people haven't seen each other all summer. I don't know. I have a feeling sometimes there are members who can't necessarily, like even if we're allowed to be in person, it, you may still not be comfortable with that. Um, and that's like, that's something that also needs to be sort of allowed for. Um, so we should think about our next meeting but let's not make like a year long decision until we know what the rules are. Um, I realize it's not so helpful. We are also looking at what our locations, um, you guys are familiar, most of you are familiar. We have several new members. We have two conference rooms in city hall that actually shortly before the pandemic had been fitted out with cameras and stuff so that we could do um, video conference meetings. In, and so we could basically broadcast on the local TV those meetings, and that was set up. Um, I don't know the full status of all of that yet, 
Um, there are also conversations starting at the mayor's level and city council about, um, we have a conference room in one of the fire stations. There's a public room in the police station and there's a public room in DPW, but we don't have public Wi-Fi at the police station or the fire department at this time. So that's something that the mayor's office is looking into like, what can we do? How can we make this work? Um, so, cause that's also right now, I think we may be the only city committee meeting right now, but there's actually school committee. That's actually no school committees meeting right now. So there are only two tonight, but there are certainly many nights when there are three or four meetings at the same time. Um, so figuring out who gets to be where is gonna be a, a good big question too. Is that before I move on and say, are there any other administrative, you know, how is that before I go? Alicia, no. our meeting is early July and this decision doesn't come down until mid-June. It seems like we should stay for at least one meeting with the format that we have. Well, that's the question. So it's easiest for us to say, well, next month we'll just be fully remote because it's it's been working, but if the governor's order is rescinded as of June 15th and nothing changes, we're not allowed to meet fully remote. We could have like a TV on and we could have a Zoom window where the public could participate, but we would have to have quorum in person unless the governor's extension passes. And would it make sense for us to discuss the timing for our next meeting right now as part of this conversation? Do you guys prefer that? We couldn't do that. That was in the administrative period. And I, I sent out a message and I got several replies. And oddly enough, every one that replied had August 9th available. So I figured, well, that seems to be leading the vote. And so I'm going to throw out August 9th as the suggested date. It's a Monday um, of the next uh, of the summer meeting. Basically, we will we will combine July and August into one meeting. Um, apologies to those who uh, wouldn't be able to make it, but everyone that replied could make that evening. So that has uh, a preference uh, so far. Uh, I don't know if we need to vote on that, uh, um, Alicia, or just. Uh, I think the first question is, is that a problem for anybody who's on the call now? No, that works for everybody. Um, it works then, for me. I was going to say, unless uh, somebody has an objection. Right. Well, in the summer, I don't have any, I, I, I really can't plan out that far because I never know what we're going to be doing, but. It seems reasonable. Okay. And especially if it's remote, you can do it from anywhere. You have internet access. So uh, we will try, I think we would, um, if remote is an option, I think that's what we will probably do. Um, if we have to be in person, then we'll have to make arrangements to secure a, a room in City Hall or maybe at the DPW. We, we went to the DPW facility once. That wasn't too bad. <laughs> I was going to say that there are a lot of benefits to keeping the same location for every meeting for a particular committee. However, it's also kind of interesting for 
boards and commissions to get to see some of the other facilities that we have. Um, so let me know if you'd like to do something else. Um, and DPW is better to do not during uh, snow season because if it starts snowing heavily and you have a meeting scheduled that night, it can become a real problem and you could get kicked out because they need the space for getting the plows out and the people mustering and stuff. Is the new library going to have any conference rooms? The new library will have um, a small meeting room, like a, a moderate size meeting room and a very large 150 person seat one. Um, we're looking at it being open in October, I think. Yeah, well, we definitely, I, f I think like everybody's going to want to meet there as soon as it opens. So we'll want to put in dibs. They're also going to have lots of smaller rooms that are more like study rooms that are in the library um, that groups can use. And I'm not sure if how that's going to work in terms of being able to reserve them versus like you can get together there if you had a group. Okay. So we'll, it's going to be two outside of library hours. We'll have our next meeting August 9th then. And uh, if we can do it remotely, we, we probably we will. But uh, we'll make sure we update you on that, you know, whether we can or not. Right. Okay. I think that's just the a, end of our administrative. Just right? a note and apologies for, for having to duck out. Um, my computer pooped out twice on me. Um, it's, it's apparently very hot. Um, I will have to be remote on August 9th, just uh, so that you know. All right. Well, we hope that everyone can be. But we want to see you all at some point. We used to sometimes have parties in, for our committee in the deep, dark past. And, okay. uh, and nice. that wouldn't be a, a formal, but you know, maybe we could do something like that in, in my uh, backyard. We'll see uh, at some point. Okay. So one uh, other, would you like to, I'll just mention um, staffing is that, and I'll mention that the city budget is out. Um, so the mayor released it on uh, Friday. There's, um, it is completely online and it's very accessible. It's very designed for people to be able to go online and find information and read stuff. Um, if you're used to the old format, you'll be like, what is this? This is nuts. Um, but there's dramatically more information than ever before. Um, and if you're looking for the energy office, it's under planning, development, and sustainability. Okay. Very exciting. Okay, why don't we go on to Bruce Kulik's presentation then? And Bruce, you'll have to share your screen, I presume. And Okay, so I will uh, go ahead and try to share. It says only the host can share this meeting, so you'll need to activate me in some way. You are the co-host now. Great. So we will start with, I think it is this one. No. Let's try a different one. I'm on my tablet as opposed to a computer, so it's a little bit different than typical. 
Can we make jokes about MIT alumni not knowing how to work computers? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I'll have to consider that. Okay. Um, I'm not happy. Start recording or casting with Zoom. Okay, I'm doing it. And for whatever reason, oh, I guess it wants me to allow Zoom to do it. That is probably what's happening. Recording or casting? That sounds like you're sharing it. Yes, there we go. So I just had to turn Zoom on. And we'll see whether your video is paused during mobile screen sharing. Okay, so now you see my screen. And hopefully you will see this presentation. Are we good? Yes. I can see your screen. Yes. yes. Bicycle Advisory mm -hmm. Commission. Yes. Excellent. We're good. You probably cannot see me anymore in person, though. Is that correct? We see your picture. Oh, okay, cool. Just pretend I'm talking. Anyhow, uh, thank you for inviting me today. Uh, I'd appreciate the opportunity to help spread the word and let people know what we're doing on the Bike Commission. I'll start by talking about, you know, what is the Medford Bicycle Commission? Where did it come from? We were actually formed in 2013 uh, by then Mayor McGlynn. Um, that was at uh, the instigation of uh, a few other folks who got in touch with me and asked me to help organize a, a bike commission. We uh, put out bids for people to join and ended up with um, a roster that we still have a few people. So Pat Bibbins and myself and Doug Packer were part of the original crew and the rest that you see here are uh, new members over the years. So what do we do? Um, basically, it's our job to encourage cycling by those who live, work and travel in Medford. So we take into account not only our residents, but people who are gonna be working here and even making it so that uh, people who commute through Medford, of which there are a substantial number, um, are able to also use the facilities and keep in touch, similar to the way many of us might travel through Cambridge or Somerville to get to where we're going. Um, things we do are educating the road users. Obviously, we advise the city uh, through the mayor's office on all matters that are bicycle related. And we also organize um, the community of local cyclists. A few things that we've done, uh, probably the major thing that we have created over the years and continue to maintain and update uh, is the bicycle master plan, which I will dive into in just a moment. Um, we also have bicycle education, uh, um, uh, among them bike rodeos. In fact, I believe we just had one, although I don't know whether it actually went off on Friday in Tufts Park. Uh, it may have been rained out or heated out. I don't know. Uh, I'm in Colorado right now as well. So the weather here is, is quite nice uh, as opposed to, I guess, what you're experiencing there. But I'll be back tomorrow to join the misery. Anyhow, um, we do bike rodeos and we also have adult bike rides and instruction um, participating, for example, in uh, Bike to Work Day where uh, we actually help people learn routes into the city uh, if that's where they, if they are inclined to go. Uh, local events, uh, we've been with Harvest Your Energy, which you're all familiar with, Farmer's Market, Circle the Square, 
Tufts Community Day, and I'm sure I probably left uh, some items out, but we usually have um, have booths there, often give away bicycle helmets and bicycle paraphernalia like lights and uh, reflective gear um, and so on. For community outreach, we uh, do a handful of things. Uh, occasionally we'll write newspaper articles. We do have a website, which I will list uh, at the end of this presentation. We are on Facebook and other social media. Um, I tend to be disinclined on Facebook, but uh, many of the members uh, use it regularly. Um, we also act as a liaison for the city to other communities such as Somerville uh, and Everett, and uh, importantly, some of the regional organizations like Mass Pike, um, MAPC that uh, does a lot of bike infrastructure planning and help. Um, Mass DOT, we're familiar with the members that make decisions like uh, what infrastructure is going to be put in and when are they going to be doing repairs and building bridges and so forth. The Craddock Bridge is probably the, the latest one that we were involved with them to help make sure that they were keeping bicycles uh, in their mind as which is supposed to do anyhow, but just to guide them in ways that we would like to see them go. A similar DCR, uh, we're working with them. Probably the big, biggest project right now uh, is Clippership Connector, which as I understand is going out for bid this year. Um, that may have been pushed back some, but uh, I'll find out. And also looking at other uh, other paths in the area, like the potential for a path on the south side of the river, which would be more of a commuting path as opposed to Clippership Connector, which is a little bit more of a strolling recreation, maybe not quite such a fast uh, bicycle path. So those are kinds of things. Um, Mystic River Watershed Association is another great partner. Uh, we work with them quite a bit in their path uh, lobbying. And Bike to Sea, which is one of the Everett organizations that also intersects with um, right near the, uh, the Malden River uh, and River River's Edge Park and the bicycle facilities around that area. Uh, we've also been involved in working with some of the bike share programs. Uh, you may remember Lime Bike from a couple of years back that's since been discontinued. Uh, that was what they call a dockless system, which means uh, the bicycles have GPS and I guess a cell phone transmitter with them. It wasn't quite clear to me how that all worked. Um, but they did, uh, in addition to regular pedal bikes, they moved into e-bikes and scooters before somehow or another they finally decided it wasn't cost effective. Uh, currently, we're involved with Blue Bikes, uh, which is the Boston Metro uh, bike share. That is a, um, a station-based bike share system in which you pull the, bi the bike out of a station, ride to another station, and put it back in. Uh, we're working with Tufts right now. Uh, and the plan, I believe it's uh, to have five stations in Medford, uh, not necessarily at Tufts, but they would be extensions of the current network um, and need to be within approximately half a mile of another station because the, uh, the idea is that you need to be able to ride relatively quickly from one station to another. So we haven't yet decided exactly where those are going, but that's currently underway. So at this point, actually, by the way, if there's any questions uh, as I go along, um, feel free to uh, let me know. And Bob, I think you might need to do something to interrupt me or let me know. Is that true? Uh, we can, sure. Okay. So I'll continue at any rate. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about bicycle infrastructure because um, obviously a lot of people 
see it, but they don't necessarily know what, what it is. And they also don't know a lot about the rules of the road that apply to, to cyclists. Both That's a problem with both cyclists and with motor vehicle operators and others on the street. So I wanted to run through a few items uh, related to this. And this might be an area that you do have questions as we go, so feel free to interrupt. Um, one of the biggest bicycle infrastructures, of course, are simply city streets and state highways. That's the default. Um, bicycles are permitted to operate on all streets and roads, except for limited access highways and state express roads where marked. So that can be confusing to some people because there's certainly some roads which people would say, oh, that's too busy to cycle on. Why are they cycling there? And to give a good example, Fellsway is one where um, they recently put bike lanes in, which makes it uh, much more comfortable because you have a dedicated space. But prior to that, cycling was permitted on the road, even though it appears like it's a pretty major uh, roadway. Uh, of course, cycling is not permitted on the interstates, Interstate 93. And I, I will give an aside here where um, my daughter and I did take a bike trip across the country several years ago. And we found that in certain states, such as Utah and Colorado, where I am now, if there is no alternative route, bicycles are actually permitted to operate on the shoulders of the road. So there was at one point where uh, we were operating the shoulder of Interstate 80, and the, uh, the breakdown lane was probably about 15 feet wide. So it was actually not terribly uncomfortable to be operating there. Um, and people were expecting cyclists to possibly be there. So it was kind of an interesting thing. And I'm, I'm not advocating that we would operate on I-93, but I just thought that was an interesting comparison between what happens in Massachusetts and other, other uh, locations. Um, the, other, the other notable Where, exception to where we, Yes, go ahead. Yes, Dan, again. did you want to ask? Yes, so another yeah, question. So, thank you, Alicia. Quick question, Bruce. So MGL stands for Massachusetts General Law. And, um, oh, yes. I'm sorry, I should have said that. I, uh, I, I use that term so often. I just, it's one of those things that I didn't, didn't remember that people don't know what it means. I'm sorry yeah, about no, that. No problem. Thank you. Right. And then the second question was that then this applies only to Massachusetts. And as you just uh, gave an example about, then this might vary um, throughout other states, correct? Yes, if you go to other states, there'll be sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle differences. So I was gonna say the one other area that um, Massachusetts sometimes prohibits bicycles on are certain express roads. Um, certain bridges are considered to be express roads and are marked to prohibit bicycles. And another is an example like Starrow Drive, which is sort of limited access, but not quite, and that would be one that's also where bicycles are not permitted. Um, another point that I wanted to make is uh, bicycles are permitted to use the full lane at all times. And as a motor vehicle operator, that can be annoying because you have to wait, but it's certainly no worse than waiting behind a garbage truck or a school bus. Um, and of course, we encourage cyclists to operate in a manner that is um, consistent with safety and with uh, um, allowing people to overtake as reasonably as possible. Um, so there is a bit of a compromise and a little bit of a gray area there as to exactly what bicyclists might be doing or ought to be doing. But the law actually says that we are permitted to use the full lane 
and it's the responsibility of any overtaking traffic to overtake safely. Um, another item which sometimes people are confused by is bicycles are not required to use a bike lane or a side path. Um, so for example, if you wanted to make a left turn, there are different ways a cyclist can make a left turn. Uh, one choice for experienced cyclists is basically to make it the same way a motor vehicle or a motorcycle would do, where you get into a left turn lane or you get to the left of the general traffic lane and make your left turn that way. Other cyclists who are less comfortable with that can do what's called a box turn where you cross the intersection, and then you turn left, or alternatively, they can dismount and um, basically become a pedestrian to get through an intersection that's otherwise uncomfortable for them. Uh, what else do we have to do? Well, you'll probably often see bicycles riding at night that are not as visible as they ought to be. The law requires that you must have, if you're riding 30 minutes after sunset or 30 minutes before, so basically when it's dark, um, that you must have a white front light and a red rear light, as well as front white reflector and red rear reflector. And the reason for that, of course, is that um, the lights are obvious. It used to be only that you needed the reflectors, but the lights are obvious and the, uh, the reflectors are there in case, um, your, your lights are weak or they lose their battery power or fall off or whatever, uh, the reflectors are a, a, a backup that allow, allow you to be seen in the headlights of an automobile. Additionally, and this is a little bit of a surprise to many, bicycles must have wheel and pedal reflectors um, so that you can see them and they have to be yellow or white, or the operator must be wearing equivalent retro reflective clothing and ankle straps. And, I know many of you have seen me going around town in uh, the bright green retro reflective, um, you know, reflecto man uh, appearance. Um, I always do that at night because I believe that being seen is 90% of the battle, frankly. Uh, one final point, uh, bicycles may ride two abreast in a single lane. And that particularly applies to streets that might have two lanes where uh, you can overtake in the second lane. Uh, they, however, if you are riding two abreast, you can't take up more than one lane. That seems fair to me. Any questions in all this area? So I, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what what rules apply to electric bikes? Well, that's a good question, and um, it's one which is a little bit ambiguous because. Um, there are several different classes of bicycle-like vehicles, all the way from a motorcycle, a full-blown high-powered motorcycle, down to just the regular pedal bike. And in between, uh, there were at one point mopeds, which would only be a certain, uh, a certain power and be able to have a certain speed. There's also small motorcycles that have to be registered. And then with the electric bikes, that became kind of a question because um, there's also electric motorcycles that are really quite powerful. And again, you have some that are just simply electric bikes that are basically built on a, a tubular frame and um, aren't nearly as powerful as a motorcycle, but don't have any pedals. So those are really kind of like an electric moped. And the rules for those uh, tend to require you to be at least 16 and they tend to be uh, limited. And also you are limited as to where you can operate it. For example, 
if it's under a certain size, and I don't recall what that size is, but it's, it's reasonable, um, you can operate an electric uh, vehicle in a bike lane, but not on a shared use path. So there is some confusion in that, in that uh, definition. And as you can see, right in the middle, there's this thing we call cycle track, which I'll describe in a bit, which is kind of halfway between a shared use path and a, and a bike lane. And it's not clear whether, for example, a small moped or electric, all electric bike could um, operate there. The, the majority, however, are what are referred to as pedal assist bikes. And what that means is you don't have a throttle, but instead you start to pedal and these bikes are actually quite amazing because they feel like a normal bike, but they also make you feel like Superman. You get on and you start pedaling. And before you know it, you're going 20 miles an hour, just like that. And that's really for commuting and um, transportation and people who maybe might be a little bit reluctant to ride on the street, find those a lot more comfortable because you can keep up with traffic more easily or maneuver more easily and so forth. And those are all permitted in the same location that regular bicycles are permitted. A bit long-winded, but I hope that answered your question. No, that was perfect. Thanks so much. Appreciate okay. it. I so, have one follow-up to that, sure. if I may. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know this is not about scooters, but I am curious how scooters fit into that overall picture of uh, small electric vehicles. <laughs> right. So I've seen people on what looks like a, uh, what looks like a, um, I want to say surfboard. That's not what it is. A skateboard. And, uh, with a remote control and they can really go quite fast surprisingly and the regulations there have not kept up with the times although uh there is there is legislation underway to help define all these so that they make sense and it basically comes down to how fast can the vehicle go and what happens if there is a crash how you know how detrimental would that be so somebody for example on a scooter or, or on a skateboard that's motorized is probably less dangerous, in fact, than somebody who is on a bicycle going the same speed. So therefore, it would make sense that they ought to be able to be in the same locations that a bicycle would be. Um, and other scooters are kind of stand up. They, they're kind of like bicycles, but the wheels aren't quite so big. Um, we, as a bike commission, we have not been supporting scooters uh, because we feel that it's a different class of vehicle than than a bicycle. That's not to say we're against them. It's just that we we are are not we're actively not supporting them as something that we're we've been considering. Um, but anyhow, that is something that I expect over the next few years we might see some better definition as to what kind of these motor vehicles, uh, motorized vehicles rather, uh, fit as bicycles and what fit into other categories that might have uh, different restrictions. Thank you. Bruce, this is Bob. Uh, I guess to ride a bike, you do not need a license. Is that correct? That is correct. There is no licensing. Um, some people think there ought to be. Uh, I would support personally uh, voluntary licensing that would be something that you could say, you know, um, we've taken courses and learned how to, how to operate well. Um, as an aside, Pat and I, Pat Bibbins, who's the current uh, vice chair, um, are both league certified cycle instructors. That means that the League of American Bicyclists have trained us and certified us. And we use that to do occasional, um, mostly it's kids and safe route to school uh, programming. 
that we can do. But we're also qualified to teach adults. And one of the things that we encourage people to do, but it's a little bit difficult because people think they know how to ride already, but we encourage them to learn how to operate in traffic and what some of the pitfalls and what some of the misconceptions and um, basically how to manage traffic a little bit better so that they find their rides to be more comfortable. It's something that that I learned several years ago, and um, it allows me to ride much more confidently in traffic situations that people might not be comfortable in. For example, getting through Wellington intersection, which is daunting for motor vehicles, let alone cyclists, but um, you're permitted through there. And if you have to get from one side to the other, well, that's what you have to do. So it's important to understand you know, what do you need to do to be clear to motor vehicles what your intention is and therefore what they should do to respond. And if you're doing it right, it's it's generally quite pleasant unless you find someone who is, as you would in the in an automobile, just plain belligerent. Um, but as far as getting through an intersection like that, there is training that we can do. It would be also nice to um, have training for um, car operators to feel better with other modes of transportation in the roads. Uh, yes, can, you're yeah. right. And we're, in fact, we are looking at that. Emily, one of our members, has brought that up. And there's a program that um, I don't remember where she's borrowed it from. And we're looking at possibly figuring out how we can implement that. Um, it, it's got a, a cute name like Drivers for Bicycles or something. But anyhow, the idea is for uh, motor vehicle operators to understand um, how do bicycles operate in the sense of what are they permitted to do, what might they do, and also what happens when somebody's not following the laws and what would you expect? Because, you know, unfortunately, as much as we try to get all cyclists to follow all the regulations, there are people who just don't view a bicycle as a vehicle, but view it as something else and will ride the wrong way on the street, will ride erratically, make sudden maneuvers, etc. And even though it's not right, as a motor vehicle operator, you need to understand this could happen, uh, and especially with kids. So um, that's a great suggestion to uh, look into it, and we are uh, pursuing that. I don't know what will come of it yet, but that is something that's on our agenda to look at shortly. Yeah. Um, Do you have you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. Yeah, Bruce. Um, Walk Boston, Walk Massachusetts has a program called Scan the Street for Wheels and Feet. Yes, I'm familiar with that one. It's a driver education right. program. Um, and they, they often like have campaigns in neighborhoods where the neighbors will stand out at a particularly difficult intersection. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's, that's an interesting approach is to educate the drivers. So I'm going to mention very quickly that um, in the Medford transportation uh, document, sorry, I don't remember the official name that got sent uh, for us to comment. Someone actually commented that they're not sure that any, I mean, even though I just kind of support one, that education programs actually are effective and that they should, um, it should be analyzed whether putting money into something like that would actually yield um, results rather than, for example, putting that money into, you know, traffic, um, speed reducers, those things that the pumps and stuff like that. So just throwing it out, it was mentioned. Without yeah, that's, there, there is that discussion. And I will also note that there are some cyclists who find 
certain types of infrastructure to actually be detrimental. And I'll get into that in just a second as we run through this enumeration of the different types. So why don't we save the remaining questions uh, for a little bit later and I'll move on uh, with my slides uh, at this point. So the things that you might see, I wanted to get some pictures on this. Unfortunately, because I'm on my tablet, I wasn't able to actually paste them. Um, a limitation to uh, Google Slides on tablets, which is unfortunate. Um, but I'd like to add them. I can describe them and hopefully, well, actually I do have some pictures from Google uh, from uh, having done a Google Images view. So I'll go to those in a second. Um, a normal bike lane should be at least five feet wide and is basically just added space uh, in what would have otherwise been a travel lane, a uh, normal travel lane. So that means if you have, for example, um, 16 feet of space for your travel lane, you could potentially have a five foot wide bike lane and then an 11 foot wide general travel lane. And that's often what the metric is that we use. There are certain streets which a 10 foot lane is okay because um, traffic's either light enough or slow enough that, uh, or doesn't have trucks, that automobiles can still get by easily even with a five foot lane. And for a bicycle lane to be less than five feet wide, although legally permitted, it's very undesirable because a four foot wide lane turns out to really be not enough space to, um, to be comfortable away from the curb, especially if there's a gutter pan, which we don't have so many around here. Um, so five feet is preferable with maybe a four foot section, very small section, if that's all you can do to connect one bike lane to another. Uh, the second piece is one called a buffered lane. And what that means is um, between the five foot bike lane and the traffic lane, you might see a, uh, a two or three foot strip that's striped. And what's the idea for that is, is to help separate the distance between overtaking traffic and bicycle operators. One example of that is right under the Route 16 bridge uh, in Medford Square, they have a, um, a, buffered, a buffered bike lane. Now that's actually often nice because it really gives you a lot more space to operate in. But unfortunately, the way that particular one was implemented, you come off the Craddock Bridge, which has a normal bike lane. And then in order to hit the buffered bike lane, you actually need to uh, skirt to the right by about three feet to get to it. And then sim similarly, as you emerge from the bridge, you're actually in a position which provides less visibility to traffic coming out of South Street. So there are some drawbacks to some of these pieces of infrastructure that have not yet been worked out, um, mostly because a lot, a lot of um, bicycle advocates basically want to have more separation rather than less, which gets us to the next piece, a separated cycle track, sorry, separated bike lane is something which has, um, often you'll see uh, those plastic bollards, uh, for example, across a Longfellow Bridge, you might see one. And I don't recall if we have any here in Medford, um, but, oh, we actually, there, there will be on route, one, on route 28 crossing the Wellington Bridge. Um, I think they're planning to put bollards in there. Uh, or it might be what they call a protected bike lane in which there's actually some sort of a physical barrier, often say a concrete Jersey barrier between the traffic lane and the bike lane. And that's okay for some place where there's only through traffic going on, but it's obviously less desirable if an experienced cyclist wants to make a left turn during that protected area 
you have a problem. So these are the kinds of trade-offs that are, are a little bit difficult, but which uh, the, bike, the bike commission will analyze and will come up with hopefully a good compromise to figure out what needs to be done. A cycle track is something which is typically on the opposite side of the parked cars. Uh, often it's that sidewalk level and it's basically um, like having the cyclist ride on the sidewalk, but on a dedicated space. And this is something that you see all over Europe. They've got, in most of the big cities in Europe, they have a complete network on every single street. They'll have a separate cycle track, which is uh, just like having a separated sidewalk. And uh, because the network is so extensive, it tends to work pretty well. Uh, here in the US, it's, um, it's pretty hopscotch. And so you end up with situations where, for example, on, on um, uh, Beacon Street in Somerville, on the inbound side, you'll have a cycle track that's inside the parked cars, but then suddenly has to move about eight feet to the left across an intersection. And again, the visibility is a little bit tricky there because people coming off the side street don't, um, don't necessarily expect fast moving cycle traffic to be coming in what they view as the sidewalk. So again, that's an area where uh, a couple things need to, we need to work on a couple things there. One is educating motor vehicle operators that, uh, and, and alerting them that there is likely to be high speed cycle traffic coming out of an area that traditionally has not had it. And then the other is for cyclists to understand that just because they're on a cycle track, when they hit a situation like that, they need to be very uh, vigilant about what traffic that's supposed to yield to them is doing. Uh, because there have been issues where people on cycle tracks have been hit at intersections like that or at driveways, again, because they thought they had the right of way, which they did, but the crossing traffic was not aware of how to operate at that location. Uh, finally, there's a shared use path, which is um, something which is really good for recreational family cyclists, uh, also really good if the path happens to be going exactly where you want to go. Uh, the Minuteman path is a classic example of that, where um, it's, it's very well done, has a lot of good separation, and generally goes where you want to go, and it's easy to get off the path back onto Mass Ave or Summer Street to, um, to be able to get to your final destination. We have some plans for some shared use paths in Medford. I mentioned the uh, Clippership Connector as one, um, and that would lead to the paths. And that's going to be mostly good for recreational and family cycling, a little bit less so for commuting, uh, because uh, as, a, as a commuter, you really want to have a continuous straight shot that's paved and something that allows you to be able to go 15 to 20 miles an hour comfortably, uh, which is why you'll often see many, many commuters in the street as opposed to on a, a shared use path, uh, because it's just not safe to be traveling that fast when you have um, children, congestion, dogs, uh, et cetera. Um, and another thing you might have seen in streets, which people don't fully understand, are these things called sharrows. And they're basically uh, a couple of chevrons with a bicycle, and they don't really mean anything. They, they're just there to alert uh, motor vehicle traffic that cyclists should be expected in that area, which they ought to be expecting anyhow. But they're done in, in a way where a lot of um, anticipated cycles might use it, like on Playstead Road is one example 
And all it does is remind people that uh, by mass general law, you're permitted to use the whole lane anyway. Um, but it is there and it's often accompanied with signs that remind people that bicycles may use full lane. So the outbound side of Boston Avenue from Winthrop Street down to uh, Mystic Valley Parkway has sharrows in it. Um, and we chose that on the downhill side because typically uh, you can keep up with traffic on the downhill side, but are going much slower on the uphill side. Um, sharrows probably are the thing that evoke the most questions because people don't really know what it means. They think it's a bike lane in the middle of the street and it's not quite that. Um, any questions about Sharrows or anything I mentioned? And then Bruce, finally, one other slides that you yeah, have, uh, just wanted to make sure we, we um, have time for the rest of our agenda. How many more slides do you have? Uh, I think I'm almost done. I've only got about three or four at this okay. point and let's, I can, let's, let's I can speed here. up the pace. That's fine. So I'll go ahead and I'll do that. I won't, I won't show the, uh, the pictures that I wanted. Um, one of the things that you wanted to put together is, is, a question of how can we how can we partner with other organizations and these are some of the things that uh, i think we can do one is to understand things like that there are different levels um, of skill and practice i talked about some of that and why some cyclists are comfortable in traffic and others aren't um, and understanding that when when we're advocating and and thinking about putting in bicycle infrastructure and have policies they really need to run the gamut of, um, you know, children, uh, occasional cyclists and expert cyclists all together. So it's not a one size fits all. And I find that to be one of the most frustrating uh, pieces of bike advocacy that something will go in and it's not really good enough for an inexperienced cyclist and it's detrimental to experienced cyclists. So it's almost like it's worse than nothing at all in some cases. So that's one thing that we, we can do. Um, another is uh, obviously this is something that uh, dear to you encourage um, uh, people to, to cycle and to accommodate all cyclists, encourage the city and state officials to support bicycle infrastructure structure, and to just keep bicycles in your mind for all the road reconstruction projects or other, uh, other things such as zoning, um, you know, bylaws and zoning. I'd like to see us bake into the whole policy structure that we recognize bicycles as a bona fide substitute for private automobiles. And that can affect a lot of things like how much parking do you actually need? You know, that's an area where, especially as we continue to build additional apartment buildings in the city, a lot of people are saying, oh no, you still need to have two or three or whatever the number is, spots per unit. And clearly that is something which is probably not really necessary. You can probably get away with quite a few fewer parking spaces per unit if you're close to transit or if you provide bicycle parking, bicycle amenities, et cetera. And um, I, that's something I'd like to see have, have baked into our, our zoning and um, what we require developers to do when uh, they're building these new structures. And finally, you can set an example as well by learning how to use a bicycle for routine local transportation. That's something where I, I don't, I can't cite the actual statistic, but um, a certain number, you know, a large number of trips that people make are well under two miles. 
and really could be done by bicycle. If you had a bicycle that was um, in good shape with proper, you know, panniers or basket or whatever, um, going down to Whole Foods for groceries, you know, you can do it. And uh, I would encourage everybody to consider that, uh, to consider, you know, at least once a week taking one trip by bicycle uh, or walking if you're more inclined, uh, rather than using a, a private automobile to do so. Um, so what would you like to see from us with regard to uh, supporting the, the energy committee goals? So personally, slide 12, slide 12, slide 12. That's the what I think should be the focus on how to make bicycling or cycling actually a means of transportation rather than, you know, considering bikes as, you know, something done for fitness or leisure or, you know, just for kids to go to school, which is amazing, but not just that. And the second thing that I wanted to quickly say is like, I also put a, the link um, to this in the transportation document. There is a growing body of research um, that is pointing to the fact that if we build a safe cycling infrastructure, then bikers actually come into the system. Um, so if there is, you know, some sort of a, people are waiting to get more bikers just because they're a minority to build infrastructure, then that might not be the optimal thing to do. Um, so we should definitely look into that. There might be, and again, there is a growing body of research about this, a, a, a good chunk of people that just don't bike, particularly for longer distances because they don't feel safe among um, motor vehicles. Right, and that's something that we is, you know, there's a bit of a chicken and an egg. You want you want more cyclists, but in order to do that, you have to have better infrastructure. And in order to do the better infrastructure, you got to show that you have more cyclists. So it's a bit of a spiral and hopefully it's a spiral upward uh, and we can start to put in bicycle infrastructure that will make people more aware that cycling is uh, a very viable means of transportation. You know, most of the people on the, on the bike commission, of course, learned that long ago. And though we do have a few people who joined who were simply recreational cyclists and, you know, they've learned a lot about um, what can be improved. So um, I, I, I agree with you that this is probably some of the most important things that we can do as far as recognizing bicycles as a substitute for private automobiles. I, 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 think, I think that um, bicycles are the great equalizer of transportation, I think. Um, um, I think in a lot of countries, um, uh, particularly poorer countries, they, um, people tend to use them for almost anything. Mm -hmm. um, and and they they provide a mean of trans means of transport, obviously. But um, um, just like the internet was a was the information equalizer, uh, I think bicycles represent that sort of um, uh, you know inspiration. I think, and I uh, yeah, I think if we if we approach it from that perspective, I think it's um, um, it'll have larger impact. That's a great point, Paul. Okay, so finally, I just wanted to uh, give you some information here on uh, contact. We have a website, email. It's all it's all Medford bikes. 
So if you keep that one phrase in mind, you'll probably end up getting uh, getting the right place. Um, website, email, and Facebook are the, are the three main venues that we have. Uh, we do have an Instagram, a Twitter, and um, you can use that hashtag. But I don't know that we've got really any formal um, programs in place that use Instagram or Twitter. And there's no one who would really be responding to uh, the hashtags that I'm aware of. But nonetheless, you have that. And there's oh, one more thing that I do wanted to hit upon, which I had promised earlier. And Bob, if you'll bear with me for just a little bit, I wanted to show um, one of the big pieces we had here and that we're in the process of updating. This is the Bicycle Infrastructure Master Plan. And really quickly, I'll just show a few of the, uh, a few of the pages. We have a preliminary. We're showing the bike network, as we call it, which are essentially the, the, the primary streets through the city. Uh, just as you would drive uh, your car, these are the streets that cyclists would want to use because of the direct routes from one place to another. Um, we have several uh, corridor maps that we've developed that um, you can see, for example, here's one that's been fully developed where we now have from uh, Ball Square in Somerville all the way to Grove Street, we have bicycle infrastructure put in place there. And um, that's actually improved the number of people that are using Boston Avenue now as a, uh, a cycling uh, facility. Here's another example that has not yet been done. We're looking at what we could do for Central Avenue, City Hall Mall, basically every major street or connector we have recommendations for. And um, we, want to, we want to update them, but we also want to encourage the city to, to really develop a plan to build out the, this master plan um, as we go and as streets get repaved or repainted. If anybody wants to see this or get a copy of it, please let me know. I'll be happy to share the link. Uh, I believe it's probably also available from the city website if you're able to browse down through it. That is it. That's it for me. I just put the links to the the infrastructure master the in this plan to, in the chat and it'll be in our minutes. Okay. And if you could send the presentation um, at least to yeah. me or whatever, I can get, make sure it gets to the members here. Okay, I'll make sure that I that I do that. I'll send you a link. I'll put it in uh, a public area of uh, my private Google Drive, and. Um, you'll be able to get to it that way. And if you want to copy it into a more public place, uh, that's perfectly acceptable. So trying to get out of this now. Let's see. Very good. Thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, any other? With the comprehensive plan, we've um, shared an incredible number of plans with our consulting firm. And this is one of the many plans that have gone mm -hmm. to the comprehensive plan consultants. Oh. All right. Well, great. Thanks again for having me on. And I hope uh, I provided some good information to everybody, maybe cleared up some misconceptions or clarify them, whatever. And I uh, wish you the best in uh, your, the rest of your agenda. I'm going to bail out at this point and um, feel free to contact me or the bike commission if you do have further questions. Thank, you, Thank Bruce. you, Bruce. Enjoy the cooler okay. weather out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm coming. I'm coming back tomorrow. So. Enjoy while it lasts. Yes. No? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Good day. Let's uh, move on to the uh, Harvest Your Energy Festival. Alicia, is it still on? Let me give you the quick update. 
Um, yes, it's on. Mayor definitely would love to do the festival. Um, we are going to plan for the festival. I have hired, I'm in the middle of hiring an undergrad to coordinate the festival and help us with like energy data and stuff that I need done. Um, I am just working on the paperwork end of City Hall with that right now. She's going to work part-time during the summer and the school year to work on that. Um, so we haven't really started any of it. We really were waiting to see like how much cautionary language we were going to need to put into things. But I think we're hitting the point now where we think we can plan for a regular old festival in the fall. Um, we'll plan for the indoor rain date. And if everything stays the way things are right now, then it's fine. If like there's a variant and suddenly we're having shelter in place, then all the bets are off, right? But you know, that's gonna screw up a lot of stuff. But assuming that things sort of stay on the track that they're on, we can plan for the festival in the fall. And I'll just throw in here that the Mystic River Festival just announced the Arts and Culture Fest Festival. That's not organized by the city. It's organized by the nonprofit Cache. But email just came out today that Laura Brereton is going to be coordinating that on behalf of Cache this year. And they have a date, April 25th. I'll confirm. If that's Saturday, then I'm right. April? Did I just say April? Yes, you did. September. September, that's better. Okay, so yes, September 25th is Saturday from noon to 4.30 is the date for the Mystic River celebration. And October 16th from noon to three is the date for Harvester Energy. Um, I'm hoping in the next week or so to spin stuff up. Um, really, I would like to just get a little bit more detail from the health department on what they'd feel comfortable in the like caveats that we put in our outreach. And they've been really, really focused on getting buildings open right now and summer programs. So they were like, just let us get through getting summer camps with their rules and pools and all of that. And then we can talk to you about fall activities. Um, so uh, I'm hoping in the next week or so to be able to like just nail down what we, do we have to say, right? Do we have to say COVID precautions and what? And we probably will have to have some caveat on all of it saying like, assuming that things stay with the very low transmission rates and the way they are. Um, but, but I just want to check first. Okay, let's talk about green awards then to see if what we do, I mean, various options are to, well, last year we didn't do them, even though we were going to have a, a festival, but it got rained out or flooded out. We could do the same this year, or we could uh, we could activate it uh, and see what we get, and decide if we get enough nominations that are worthy of the award. Make it part of the Harvest Your Energy Festival program, or study it some more and postpone it. Uh, so. Um, those are possibilities I would entertain uh, discussion at this time. I don't know if, uh, Alicia, whether the mayor has any opinion. There's, the mayor doesn't, you haven't asked the mayor. I haven't talked to her. We talked about it months and months ago. She loves giving out awards. She yeah. likes recognizing people. 
but she also doesn't want to put any undue burden on committees that are trying to do a lot of great things. Um, so it, she would support a green awards program, but, but that doesn't mean the committee should feel they have to do it because the mayor said so. Okay. So, so we, we do have nomination forms from years ago and uh, we, we could, um, as we find worthy candidates, put them on the list. And if we have a list that's more than two or three or something like that, we could make it part of a program for a given festival. Or if we don't have anybody, we could just pass on that particular festival. That's one option. Another option is we we uh, we, we postpone it to totally and don't even consider it this year. Um, or we reconsider how, how it works, et cetera. So those are possibilities. Um, I, I've been spending some time thinking about this. Um, my my sort of casual observation is that um, participation definitely seems to be a challenge. Um, and in the past year, um, a lot of people are worried about just sustaining as opposed to, uh, you know, thinking about ways to go above and beyond uh, what it takes to get by. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, to me, the biggest challenge is, is attracting interest. Um, I, my my thoughts about attracting interest um, come down to incentives, really. Um, again, it, it might be too grand of an idea to think about for a program like this, but something that would not only um, sort of celebrate people's commitment to, um, uh, you know, to the cause, more so causing people who may have a casual interest to really step up and, and take note and, and want to do something because they want to do the right thing for the environment, but also because there might be something in it for them. Um, and so, you know, as far as this year is concerned, uh, I'm not really sure. It, it doesn't seem like there would be a, a ton of opportunity to get it moving. But if we're looking to retool the program, um, I'm, I'm sure this isn't a novel idea, but, uh, you know, is there a possibility to have conversations with City Hall to see if the city would be willing to support some sort of incentive through uh, you know, their municipal obligation, like, uh, like a tax credit or something, I, uh, you know, might be a completely ridiculous idea. You know, we're not trying to buy people's cooperation here necessarily, but at the same time, a, a little incentive will cause people to want to step up and get in the game. So, Alicia, would that be uh, a non-starter? I think that it's possible to think about whether there are some sort of incentives that would be possible. I think that a tax credit specifically would not work. And I'm not sure if that would be legally or politically or both. Um, but other ideas, like that doesn't mean, um, and like what about trying to find some organization that would sponsor some level of monetary award but then you have to sort of say, like, is this incentivizing a business or an individual? Right. What? Right. The idea, the beauty of a tax credit is like 2% on a house and 2% on a business, you know, whatever is a massive difference in money. But it's a, a meaning like that amount ends up being meaningful for either group. Right. 
Um, whereas if you said, could we get Century Bank to give us $10,000 so we could give $1,000 to every winner, it would be meaningful for residents and it would be maybe meaningful businesses. It depends, probably less so. Um, it also, just to be aware, would greatly increase the burden on the committee to make good decisions and defensible decisions, especially if there was money behind anything. Everything you say makes a ton of sense. Um, I, I don't have a ton of committee experience, so I'm not sure if what I ask for is completely off the charts. But um, yeah, I, I mean, that's if it gets if it gets too you know, incentivized, then it's a whole different level. Um, just, you know, looking for uh, ways that, that sort of the city could um, offer support to such an initiative because it's, you know, uh, it, it seems that folks who run the city generally are, are interested in helping to improve the, the green profile of the city, if I may. Um, and, you know, it seems like in its basic sense, it's a way for the city to say, yes, we're all about this and, you know, we'll support the winners going to private contributions or, you know, private support is, is really sort of, it's entering a, a bigger variable. Um, so I don't know. Just, um, thanks for the feedback, Alicia. I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, if people are interested in talking about it further, I think it's something worth discussing longer term about, you know, the possible ramifications of it. But, you know, as far as the, the shorter term, um, it, it obviously I wouldn't have any aspirations of sort of working toward it for this year. I, I think that one thing is uh, Murphy's law is if we, if we were to put it off for this year, we would get an excellent candidate because that's how that kind of thing works. Um, the second thing is it was, um, it was originally supposed to be an educational piece to get people to talk to their neighbors about, uh, we were specifically thinking about solar installations at the time. Um, and, the one thing that it really hasn't done is it hasn't done that. And maybe maybe the focus should turn to not so much people who are doing, um, you know, um, stuff to their houses or their homes or their businesses to save energy or save the environment, as to maybe shifting it more towards people who are working to educate others about their decisions to do what they were doing. You know, that way it might spread, you know, because it's really all about getting the information out there and saying, oh, well, I found this grant. My solar panels actually didn't cost me anything. Um, you know, I put this and this together and now I get the free tax, the free energy credits and, um, you know, uh, or, or the solar people get the credits, but I have a zero electric bill, um, things like that. But having people discuss these things with their neighbors, maybe that would be more the incentive for uh, um a, a green award would be that you've educated the public somehow or you've removed the movement forward as opposed to actually having an installation. I don't know, just a thought. Yeah, so along those lines of what uh, John Rogers just said, I had this idea, um, maybe even run it in parallel to the Greens Award. So Met for Now has this bi-weekly um, email that sent out and then maybe not on all of them, but it would be very nice to, you know, from time to time, then feature a resident that has done something um, along the lines of what John just said. So maybe tells a story and tries to inspire other people. And I'm, I'm assuming that you know, the people that have subscribed to that um, weekly um, mailing, uh, bi-weekly, actually are interested in reading about it. So um, 
I don't know, and that doesn't have to take that much work from the committee, right? Like we don't have to spend a lot of time, you know, vetting the person. It's just like some resident that, you know, feels that they want to communicate something cool that they have done related to the environment or energy and then just wants to share with other residents so they can they can inspire them uh, to follow their steps. Hey, Barry, uh, I think you raised your hand. Yeah, it seems we, we've moved a little past it. Oh, dear. Um, it's because you're listening to us on one device and trying to speak to the other one. Is the device that you're listening on, can you use the mic on that one? Uh, no. Um. Okay, I've, I've just removed uh, my sound. I, I can talk, but I can't hear. Um, <laughs> um, because I couldn't figure out how to turn off the sound on the uh, tablet. Um, uh, just, um, Chris hasn't seen the history, but my view is that for years we've been giving awards to people whose primary motivation was that they were saving money by doing what they were doing. Uh, so it, it would seem sort of absurd to now start giving them money uh, as a reward for saving money. Um, and there's a lot of better ways to, to use those resources, it would seem to me. Sure. That, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, Barry. Um, I can't hear you. Right <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, if I could second what Chris Dunn said. One second. Now Barry can hear us, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, dear. Um, I'd like to second what Gaston said about uh, maybe making it an educational feature rather than an award. Um, I mean, you could also have an event where you throw a party for the the awardee, but um, I think the idea oh, of featuring... That. <laughs> Sorry, I had to just tell you we did that. To throw a party for the awardees. We did that one. Yeah. And it was awesome. And it was 105 degrees that day. You remember that? Loretta <laughs> did a lot of work, I remember. Oh my God, that was, well, it was great though. It really was. Is there maybe, instead of looking for things that might be happening, ways to generate ideas for things to happen, such as maybe some sort of, I don't want to say contest, but kind of a way to generate people to bring ideas forward and, and get the community to, to come up with ideas for ways that the community could get involved and do things that would have impact on the environment in Medford. Um, you, know, you mean a, like, a, like a challenge or something? Some sort of challenge, yeah. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say contest because that then I don't necessarily know how that ends but yes yeah, some sort of challenge where i could see different whether it be age groups or you know whether it's business or residents 
like perhaps we could challenge people to green up their electricity to 100% renewable electricity, which is ooh, here, here. great segue to our <laughs> speaker this evening. <laughs> right on. Yeah. I had to do that, but like, cause there are, this, this committee has run a lot of different programs over the last 11 years on how to help people be more green and encourage it in different educational programs. And it may be that where it feels like you're starting to come to is let's focus on how, educating people about solar, about greening up their electricity, about recycling, about like, and do a program targeted on um, getting people to make a difference rather than a program targeted to award people who are doing it on their own. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm going is generating the action rather than just the people who, the few people who may be doing things. And but in order to do that, you have to, you have to define the challenge. Yep. Um, yep. We, we have to have a, a clear definition of that challenge. So in addition to stuff that we're going to talk about, I'm just going to take a little privilege to jump in real quick with something that is perhaps hasn't been clearly announced yet and is a little bit in buried in the mayor's transmittal letter of the um, budget, not the transmittal letter, um, but one of the many, oh, her budget message. One of the many things that she's talking about is we absolutely need to and are planning to launch a, um, sorry, uh, I want to use the right words, a solid waste disposal study commission to look at what are we doing with our waste in Medford, you know, trash, recycling, composting, all of it. And is it equitable? Like what services are we providing? How are we providing them? Are they fair to people? Are they equitable? Are they doing what they should be doing? And this commission is something that'll be launched in the next few months, not this week or anything, um, because it's gonna, my office is gonna coordinate it, but it's in preparation for our, what's now a 13 year trash contract is coming to an end in 2023. And before we negotiate or go out to bid for a new trash contract, we're gonna to wanna to, um, understand what the city needs. And that's something that I think this committee has had a lot of interest in and we'll be spinning this up and you guys will have like thoughts and input and it's perhaps will come up out with some ideas around education. Cause it's not all, let's just provide a new vendor. Some of it is, let's teach people what to yeah, do. Yeah, education is key. I don't even know how many residents are actually recycling properly. So we can even have a free composting service, but then are people gonna even use it properly? So I think education is a key component on this, in addition to what we are. Yeah, that's one of the things that's up and coming. So, so, so I think we should probably, um, looks like, we aren't really ready to reinvigorate the Green Awards program, but think about how it might be transformed into challenges. And so we will probably take this up again at the August meeting, 
but I, I suspect that for 2021, um, I doubt we'll have green awards conveyed. No one, it seems like that's the consensus I'm seeing. We, we have to think about how we might change the focus of, of incentives or not really incentives, but how to have environmental progress and recognize those efforts. Uh, so we'll, we'll have a discussion in August and keep thinking these thoughts, uh, you know, and you can always send emails um, about some ideas in the, in the meantime. Let's see, is the uh, speaker from uh, Good Energy available? We can, uh, we can. And here, Daria is the uh, speaker. She logged in. All right, we'll, we'll do our subcommittees after that. Uh, some of them may be very quick. Uh, do you want me to start and introduce kind of what I do? Sure. Great, I'm Daria Mark. I work at Good Energy and we're the aggregation, the energy consultant that organizes the Medford Electricity Aggregation Program. So my role with our programs uh, is twofold. One is marketing and communications and outreach and the other is compliance. And here to talk about the first part. Um, so what I do at Good Energy is I, I talk with many um, towns and cities uh, who are interested in a lot of what you are also interested in, how to get people to choose a more renewable option. So your program has the 100%. Um, and so how do we get more people to sign up for that? So I put in, um, I guess uh, we'll, we could do this two ways. I put a couple of slides together on just things that other communities have done, sample materials, et cetera. They all have a story. They all have like a, you know, they did this and then they went there and, and it worked or it didn't work, et cetera. But if you want, I, um, I only caught a little bit of the last conversation you, were, you had about kind of what your goals are. But if somebody wants to summarize like what your goals are as far as the electricity aggregation program, if you have discussed as a committee and have like a cohesive plan or, or idea or, or something, um, then I can tailor my comments more to that. I think so some of the members this committee was very involved in getting aggregation passed and got a lot, had a lot of presentations on it. However, we have at least four, if not six or seven new members since then. So does anybody need like the thumbnail on what is, what we're talking about, what aggregation is? Why don't you do like a couple of minutes on it, that? It sounds like people, right? This is where the, the city people said, can you make our electricity rates lower? And we said, the only way we can do that is if we do a negotiated buy on behalf of all residents. And so then um, we did a plan, we got a consultant, the consultant wrote the plan. Um, we got permission from the city council. And so the city um, negotiated an electricity rate on behalf of all the residents. And the only way that works both like financially and legally in Massachusetts is if it's an opt-out program. So all residents are automatically enrolled into it. But why would the en energy director be pushing this, right? Um, because cheaper, we all know that when things are cheaper, people use more of it. 
And if it's more expensive, people can serve better. So why would we reduce the rate? Turns out you can also um, bundle renewable energy with it. And the amount of renewable energy that we bundled on the default amount for the city of Medford is 5%. So everybody is buying 5% renewable energy above and beyond what the state requires through our aggregation by default. It's fractions of pennies on what your electricity cost to do that much more. So most people just stay with that because there's no, like it's not a noticeable. I think there's some calculations that'll show for like an average person will pay 12 or $15 more a year for that because of that. But that buy across the entire city is actually very significant. And it's a really significant amount of renewable energy because we've aggregated so many accounts. Um, however, there's also an option that residents can opt up to 100% renewable energy. And many residents were doing that through Green Energy Consumer Alliance, formerly Mass Energy Consumer Alliance, through a program they had with National Grid. We buy our clean energy for the aggregation through Green Energy Consumer Alliance. So we're literally just buying from the same nonprofit, um, the same renewable energy that we the people would have done through the national grid program. Um, but now they're doing it and they're getting the discounted rate for electricity. So somebody who opts up to 100% green may end up paying a tiny bit more than they would have paid for electricity with national grid just by default. But now they're also getting 100% green. So like my, I pay for 100% green and it's more than the default rate for national grid electricity, but it's not more than the default rate plus renewable energy would have been. And so many communities run campaigns to get people to opt up to 100% renewable energy. We have on the order, and I didn't look up these numbers, maybe Daria has it, 18,000 electricity accounts, 15,000 electricity accounts. And we have on the order of 100 who have opted up to 100% renewable, like, like a hundred accounts. So the, one of the things that Good Energy would help the committee, support the committee if they wanted to do, is a campaign to get people to opt up to 100% renewable energy. And so one of the things I talked to Daria about was before we say like, do we wanna do this? What does that mean? What would a campaign look like? What, are, what have committees done? And so to give you an idea of like the kinds of things that the committee might do to, to encourage people to opt up to 100% renewable energy. The city gets no extra money if we do this. The good energy gets no extra money if we do this. So I just want you to know that both Daria and I are doing this because it's good for the planet. And there's no like commission that either one of us gets for running a campaign like this. That. Okay, you set the, you set the stage for Daria. Yeah, that's perfect. I just wanna put my compliance hat on for, by the way, how's my sound? Can you hear me well? You're good? Yes. Okay, great, thank you. Um, I just wanna put my compliance hat on for one second and say that savings cannot be guaranteed. The DPU requires that I add that anytime we say the the program is competitive or there's savings or any of those things, like even stable rates get a disclaimer. So sometimes on materials, when you're like, why did she put this like savings can be guaranteed? 
that's why. And now it's a public meeting that's being recorded. I feel the need to mention that since Alicia said savings and competitive rates many times. I just want to make sure that we, we have that all in one place. <laughs> so thank you for bearing with me. Thank you. Um, I will look up how many people you have um, if I have a chance, but I did not come prepared with that information. I did come prepared with some slides. If I could share screen. Sure. I think I need permission. You know what? I just turned on share screen for everybody because the people on this call are all members and nobody's going to be bad. So um, everybody is permission Perfect. now. Um, so I should be able to share materials. Can we see what I have? Yes. Can you see my slide? Yes. Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so I guess let me let me start. So most successful campaigns use multiple mediums to reach to people. Um, I learned a lot of organizing from a seasoned organizer and she um, had this rubric where it takes three touches for someone to make a decision. And I think that's very accurate, meaning that somebody needs to hear the same thing three places or three times, and then they'll sign up or then they'll take an action. So, I think there's a lot of people out there, Medford included, um, who are really concerned about the climate, willing to sign up for 100%. It's just that like inertia of like, just getting your bill, going to a website and signing up. And just so I'm clear, it really is that simple. There's a website, you go here, um, you can enroll or change. And you know, it's just, we need your account number, um, your service address, you pick what you want. So it's really a five minute process, but most people don't walk around with their account number like in their back pocket. So there is that inertia, right? So getting people to change requires kind of a multifaceted approach. So what I'll show you is the full range of things we've done, although maybe not even the 100%, there's probably other things that I've not included that we could still do, um, just to give you ideas and to get you to start thinking about like what could be the next um, thing that you could do to do this outreach. So we can provide and support graphics. If you have an idea of something you wanna to put together, reach out, graphics about how the program works, et cetera. So um, what Alicia didn't mention is that the program has, your electricity has two parts. There's a supply and a delivery. And delivery is always, um, it's always the utility uh, and, National Grid or Eversource, and then uh, the customer still sees one bill, and then the supply you could change, and that's where the Medford program lives. So whatever graphics you need, as needed, we can provide to tell the story that you want to tell. The program website, you have a program website. Um, there's other programs that do lots of different things on their program websites. Um, you know, uh, there's goal meters, there's um, help us meet a goal with lawn signs and call outs. So the program website can really serve as your tool to, it's, it's a landing place, right? Somebody goes there, they're not sure what the program is. You tell them what your, what your goals are, et cetera. This is Arlington, a community that is very, very deeply and heavily committed. They have about a thousand opt-ups in there, um, two opt-up products. They have a 50 and 100% option. 
Um, so program website, something to think about. That's our Providence City of Providence website that's working um, also very aggressively to start their program um, sometime soon. Public meetings. So if you want to organize something, this usually works really well around um, an event like uh, Earth Day was a big one, right? People had a lot of meetings and things that we could attend and present. I can do like a 15, 20 minute presentation on the program, answer questions, whatever's needed or a colleague of mine. So public meetings work really well, but they usually don't work well out of the blue. They usually work well in conjunction with something. So if the city has like an initiative they roll out, they set a goal for 2030 for electricity or 2050 or 2040 or whatever it is, or clean, you know, net zero emissions or something, some kind of plan is launched and you want to do something that involves the aggregation program, we can come present. Um, we can help so develop social media. We do that for a lot of our clients. So we can do graphics and text for you to send out. Um, social media is becoming obviously very influential and we are, we, we have a, in the forms when people sign up, we ask like, how did you hear about this? And that's definitely coming up very often. Social media, social media, social media, right? So somebody told, somebody posted, I clicked, I clicked and I signed up. It's also handy that it's both electronic. Um, so handouts are available. We can make handouts. These are bookmarks. We can make flyers. I'll show that next. Um, I don't know if there's a language consideration, but we can get things translated as needed. And we can print these materials for you um, Usually, you know, it's like uh, like people will have a town meeting. I know you guys are a city, so it's a little different, but it's the same idea. Like if there's a meeting, you need 100 copies, something that's, that's we can work, work with you on that. So bookmarks, um, flyers, Brookline did this flyer. They had a generic flyer and then they were going door to door for other things. There were, there were a couple of activists who were going door to door. And so they, um, this was actually a, still a holdover from Arlington that wanted the dear neighbor sign in their, in their like handout. It basically says we have an opportunity to sign up for hundred percent clean electricity, sign, you know, join, join us. Um, and again, we printed this and, and then activists went door to door and distributed. Uh, the one in Arlington actually had a signature, somebody signed it and she gave it out in her condo building. So it's that like relational, um, you know, and she signed her name and said, I live in an apartment. I don't remember what it was like 27C or whatever it was, but you know, it's, it's that kind of relational outreach um, where it feels good to talk to another person who can answer questions. Like, why did you sign up for hundred percent? Oh, because it's, you know, because it's this or that and how was the experience, et cetera. So that's really handy. Um, lawn signs. This is in Arlington. That's uh, Melrose. Um, you know, lawn signs, like, I love them because they're so visible. I don't know if there's any city rules on, on lawn signs or how many you can have. I know some cities have bans on lawn signs. Assuming that's not the case for you. Um, you know, the downside, it's a lot of plastic. The upside is it's very visible and they are reusable and they, um, we, we can replace the stands, which tend to break more often. The signs themselves tend to last quite a while. And they really don't need to say anything more than we have a program sign up for hundred percent. Cause that's, that's really just, you know, again, you're trying to draw the person to talk to you, to you as a neighbor um, to explain and say like, this is why we do this, et cetera. And again, when we check and we ask people why, how they heard about the sign up when they're signing up, a lot of it is banners. So we're signs are banners. So we're assuming this is a big part of that. And then speaking of banners, um, 
you know, if there is a big event, if there is a big something, if you have an opportunity in a place, in a location, in somewhere to put up a banner, again, not by itself, because by itself it's lost, but by its, uh, by, but with uh, other materials, right, with other actions that you're taking, maybe it's writing letters to the editor, maybe it's an op-ed by a prominent person in the city, something that's coordinated um, and runs together. Um, we have the ability to get this done too. And then I think what is probably, I, I, I could say, I think with fairly good confidence that this is probably the most effective piece of marketing I've ever seen for 100% option. I did not put this together. In fact, Good Energy had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, but the, somebody in Arlington thought had this great idea. So if you have, it's minute and 30, if I can play this video, I think it would be really instructional. Um, I, I think it's it's one of the best. Uh, is that good? Okay. And okay. I'll make sure the sound comes through. So let me know if it doesn't. No sound. When you share screen, there's an option you have to choose. So yeah, you'll have to stop sharing and then reshare or reshare directly. Did you, Did you hear it that time? No. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So hold on a second. Let me share the screen again and then. There might be a checkbox along the bottom of your share screen that says enable audio. And, and optimize for video. Share sound. Optimize for video clip. Yes. That's something every day. I love it. Okay. Does anybody know if I should share sound mono or stereo high fidelity? No stereo. High fidelity. <laughs> Okay. Let's start that at the beginning. Okay, can you... Did you know that the electricity in your home could be dirty energy? This is one of the most polluting power plants in all of Massachusetts. It's unfair people have to live right next to a plant that makes such dirty energy that all of us rely on. Dirty energy is warming up the planet, and the ice that polar bears need to survive is melting. This is clean energy. Wind turbines and solar panels make energy that doesn't pollute our environment and help stop climate change. You can help by signing up for Arlington Community Electricity. Go online and you can pick 50% or 100% of your Eversource bill to be from clean energy. My school's green team is helping to get the word out. Electricité communautaire d'Arlington. Arlington communautaire Electricidad communautaire de Arlington. Gemeinde Arlington. 
go to this website for more information or to fill out the sign-up form. It only takes a few minutes to become a climate champion. So that was put together by a green team um, in Arlington, Massachusetts. And I, I have to attribute a substantial amount of the signups we've seen. I mean, there's been a lot of effort in Arlington to get signups out. And there's a lot of these lawn signs that are out, but that video um, has also been passed around a lot and on social media, et cetera. And so it's simple, it's short, it's, by children, uh, you know, with a very clear message. And I think it's really compelling. So if you have anybody who's willing, um, you know, to invest energy and time, uh, that is a, an interesting, interesting piece of marketing. And then I think I will stop now and uh, open it up to questions if you have any or discussion as you'd like. Yeah, I have a question. Um, uh, what is your audit? process for source. What is our audit process for sourcing? For sourcing, are we talking about renewable electricity? Yeah. Um, Do you want me to talk to that? So, because Daria is the consulting firm and we get it through Good Energy Consumer Alliance and they are a regional nonprofit that buys directly recs from solar, wind, and hydro projects in the New England area. Okay. Yeah, and if you go to the website or Green Energy Consumers Alliance, you could see where the sources are. Um, all the re additional renewable energy certificates that are in the program are uh, what's called Mass Class 1 recs, um, which is the state standard for what renewable electricity um, should be at it's 18% it's for the RPS. And so we're adding an extra 5% um, on top of that in the default product that most participants in the program are enrolled in, as Alicia was saying earlier. Um, and so the RECs you're getting are actually even better than Mass Class 1 for that additional electricity. Mass Class 1 allows imports um, from basically anywhere that our electricity grid connects to, which is upstate New York and Eastern Canada. But Green Energy Consumers Alliance focuses very heavily on New England and very heavily on Massachusetts. They, they focus only on New England, so they don't go outside of New England. And they um, focus heavily on Massachusetts and Rhode Island um, to really develop those sources and support those sources that are closest to the places um, where there's a great deal of population that's using. Thanks. Daria, this is Bob Payne. What, what does it cost to go from 5% to 100%? Renewable. Um, that is a great question. So um, you have two calculators. I'm not sharing anymore. Can I share my screen again? That'd be okay. Sure. So I have. Okay. So if you go to your program website and there's a calculator. Um, I just clicked the national grid. There's an Eversource calculator also. Um, so you can enter your monthly kilowatt hours. I'm gonna just do 100 to, um, just cause it's an easy 
round number that we can then project from. Uh, I don't know anybody who uses only 100 kilowatt hours a month, but um, uh, you can estimate, you know, if you use 600 kilowatt hours, it's about six times the difference. So you could see the local green, that's the, that's the default option. It's around $11.5 and $14 and dollars So there's about a $3 difference um, for every 100 kilowatt hours per month. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you mentioned before it was like 10 or $12 a year for the 5%. I don't know if it scales up linearly. So like would be 20 times that for hundred um, percent. So I, are you asking how much more would a hundred percent cost than 5% over the years over the length of a year or how much? As a as a ratepayer, that's that's the bottom line. I want to know what it's going to cost me to go to 100. percent I think you need to have that answer. It depends how much electricity you use over the course of the year. So you can see what the difference is between the 14.69 cents versus the 11.5 cents, and that's per kilowatt hour. And then it depends how many kilowatt hours you use over the course of the year. And the problem is that number varies dramatically from person to person. Okay. Yeah, so somebody in a small apartment would use less than someone. Okay, I just want to know because I think that's what that's going to be an important question. Is what is yeah, another, another important question along those lines is given the headlines that uh, happened uh, related to Texas with people getting you know bills on the thousands of dollars. We need to make sure to address the fact that you know well that's not it's not possible for that to happen to them because um i feel that you know people are gonna some people are gonna wonder about you know can, can i build just high rockets out of nowhere yeah so so what we find so you've um you have three options in the program right what we find in the people who are signing up for the 100 percent are signing up because it makes a difference in the fight against climate change, right? It's for the 100%, it's for supporting renewable sources, it's to transition us from um, burning natural gas in New England, which is a marginal resource, to producing as much as we can from solar, wind, small, um, low impact hydro and anaerobic digestion, right? So what we find um, is that the 100% option, because it is so well vetted and because it is, it is truly provides that additionality of the more we use, the more there is a demand to build more. Um, people sign up for it because they are really worried about the climate and they are um, interested in a vetted solid solution. So anybody who's like, well, I'm not sure, but what's it going to cost me? Going to the program website, they can open their latest bill and see how much they spent a month and go to the program website, use the calculator, plug it in. Uh, they can see how much they spent last year. Uh, your electricity bill has the last 12 months on it of your usage. So you can make that addition and you can compare the, um, the default, which is the local green, the 5% and the 100%. And there is also a basic option. So for people who don't want any renewable energy, who are the most price sensitive, right, they could still stay in the program, benefit from the longevity, benefit from um, the bulk buying, 
but not add any additional renewable energy. So if you're talking to someone who is extremely price sensitive, I've never in my life been able to convince somebody who's extremely price sensitive that they should sign up for 100% renewable energy. That conversation usually have, you know, is a kind of a dead end to start with. It's more of somebody wants to sign up for renewable energy, their question is going to be, is this greenwashing? And the answer is it's not. Um, Green Energy Consumers Alliance works specific, who's the supplier for the additionals, um, works very hard to ensure that the projects meet that additionality criteria, meaning that if we buy from these projects, we are taking off um, available RECs and therefore creating a demand for more RECs in our region where we are otherwise going to be using natural gas. Right, I was just referring, I'm not familiar with the exact terminology, but I, I think you know what happened in Texas was that people had a, um, a variable rate, and then because of all the problems that they got, then they got a $10,000 bill. So I just, you know, we need to emphasize that this is not a variable rate, and then, you know, it's the fixed rate. Um, so you can get a $10,000 bill, you, in, you know, if you have been getting like $100 monthly bills uh, for the past like five years. Right. You could tell exactly how much the difference will be from the calculator on the website um, if you go for the 100% option. The other thing is people can opt out at any time. Maybe for people who are scared of that kind of thing, you can say you can opt out at any time. Yeah. And switch choices at any time too. Somebody could sign up for hundred percent and then a year later they decide, look, it's, you know, it's too expensive or our financial situation has changed or whatever it is. They can go back to the 5%, they go back to the basic, they can switch. There's no limit to switching products. Okay. Thank you, Daria. I think we're running low on time, but this has been very helpful and um, we might come up with a way to promote this at the Harvest Energy Festival and other venues. Uh, want to see what they're, what you have for handouts on this. Maybe uh, you've worked through Alicia on informing us that. Yeah, happy to. I'm, I can provide either small format or eight and a half by 11. And okay. we'll, I'll good. work with Alicia on counts and numbers and things. So thanks so much for your time. Let me sign up now. Okay. Thank you. All right, we are going to dispense with our subcommittee reports, but I'm going to put all the subcommittees on notice. So we're, you're, you're only going to, you're going to have to come back in August with some updates. Um, I did send out just a, a presentation on the transportation, which basically includes notes from the adapt, you know, the the climate um, adaptation uh, draft um, plan that's going around. Uh, so we'll resume the subcommittee reports in August, and that will, I think, get us to the end of the meeting, unless someone has a pressing matter that they would like to uh, talk about. I just want to remind everybody, I think I sent you all an email, the city's getting an award on Thursday from the Environmental Business Council for our climate work with the Resilient Mystic Collaborative. So you can watch it, you can join it, be there. Um, we're very excited. Good job. <laughs> Good for you. Okay. Uh, uh, if there's no one who um, I'm going to ask for any anybody who objects to re, to um, to adjourning, I hear no objections. So we will meet again August 9th, and I'll send out reminders well before then 
for subcommittees to um, consider what they would like to present. And thank you all for coming. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you.